0: All right, morning church. Good to see you here this morning. Good to hear your voices as we sing together. We're going to study scripture. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to the New Testament book of Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, we're starting a storyline series. What's the series about? Basically, the series is asking the question, what is the story that God is writing with us among his people Um, if we told our collective testimony, so maybe you've told your individual testimony, you've written it down or you've shared it with other people, but think about our corporate life as the people of God. If we were gonna write down our collective testimony, what would be kind of the chapter headings of the story that God is writing for us as his people? So here's where we're gonna go. It's five-week series, storyline series, and here's the kind of answers that we're gonna look at together. The story that God is writing for us as his people is a story of salvation, That's this morning. He cleanses us from all sin. It's a story of renewal, he deepens our faith. It's a story of belonging, he gives us family. It's a story of faithfulness, he will never leave us. And it's a story of mission, he sends us to be a blessing. So in in that way, really we're just looking once again at multiple texts of God's word to see what are our marching orders? What's the story that you're writing so that we can lean more fully into that reality? And it all starts here with salvation. God is writing a story of salvation. He is cleansing hearts. He is bringing sinners close to him and he is satisfying them eternally and forever. Matthew 15 is a series of stories that might seem disconnected. So we're gonna read it in, in bites. They might seem disconnected, but there's a thread that runs all the way through Matthew 15. And what's happening in Matthew 15 is you're seeing Jesus show you the heart of God. It's opening a window into the great need of man, of humanity, and it's opening a massive window into the heart of our God who saves us through Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at it in three installments. Number one is this reality. The clean are actually dirty. The clean are actually dirty. Look with me. Follow along as I start reading in verse 1. Then Jesus was approached by Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem who asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, why do you break God's commandment because of your tradition? For God said, now Jesus is gonna quote the Bible, the Old Testament. God said, honor your father and your mother. God said, whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, so you see the contrast. You say, whoever tells his father or mother Whatever benefit you might have received from me is a gift committed to the temple. We'll come back and talk about what that means. Verse six, he does not have to honor his father. In this way, you have nullified the word of God because of your tradition. Hypocrites, now that is the first. In Matthew's gospel, that's the first of many times Jesus drops the H-bomb on these guys. Hypocrites, and then he says, he reminds me of a verse in the Old Testament that goes like this. Isaiah prophesied about you when he said... This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. Summoning the crowd, he told them, listen and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. But what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came up and told him, do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? In other words, it's like the disciples are saying, you know you actually said that out loud. That's a hugely offensive thing and it's got people pretty prickly right now. Well, Jesus doubles down and he says, leave every plant, verse 13, every plant that my father didn't plant will be uprooted. Leave them alone, they're blind guides and if the blind guide the blind, both will fall into a pit. Look, Jesus rolls hard in verse 14 and then you keep reading. Then Peter said, explain this parable to us. Jesus says, do you still lack understanding, he asked. Don't you realize that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated, but what comes out from the mouth comes from the heart, and this defiles a person. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, slander. These are the things that defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands Does not defile a person. So, what's going on here in this passage? What's happening in the very opening of the first couple of verses is there's a road trip that's coming together. And these Pharisees, these religious leaders, found out that Jesus is in exactly the wrong place. He's right in the heart of Gentile territory, dirty people country. Uh, believers don't go there, God's faithful people really don't go there, and that's where Jesus is. So they pack up, they take a 100-mile road trip to go to Jesus to drill him and to lecture him on why Jesus' disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. And it's not really mainly an issue of them being kind of OCD about hygiene. That is not, that's not their point. The point that they're raising has everything to do with holiness and hierarchy. Holiness and hierarchy. So they say, basically, their beef with Jesus is, who gave you the authority to overturn centuries of traditions? So you show up on the scene. These these traditions of holiness codes and hand washing and ceremonial washings, it's been a major part of our history for centuries. Then you show up and poof, none of that matters anymore. Nobody's got to do any of that stuff anymore. Who gives you the right to overturn centuries of elder tradition. It's about hierarchy. And here's the truth, the principle that we can come away with as God's people. It's possible to have outward purity while neglecting inward change, right? It's possible to have outward purity while neglecting inward change. By the way, just for clarification, the Old Testament never commanded hand washing prior to eating. It's, it's not back there The closest thing you can find is Exodus chapter 30, where God gives specific commands to a specific group of people, namely the priests. And he says, look, before you come into the tabernacle, I need you to do these washings. And before you offer a burnt offering, I need you to do these washings. And at some point, the Pharisees come on the scene, and they almost have this sort of no rule left behind policy. Right? It's like if there's a rule that's good enough for them, it's good enough for all of us. Sort of like when your teacher, when you showed up in class and you had only three cookies and they said, do you have enough cookies for the rest of us? And so they looked back in the Old Testament, they see this law and they say that needs to be applied across the board. And so century after century, now people don't even know why. There's just this hand washing thing that has to happen. And if you don't do it, guys will come roll up on you from a hundred miles away and say, why aren't you doing the thing? The thing we've always done. That's a problem that you're not Doing it. And Jesus says, you need, you need to understand there's a category distinction that you're confusing. He says, Because you're mixing up your words with God's words. <laughs> you're mixing up human traditions, which is in one category, with God's commands, which is in a distinct and totally different category. Look at verse three. So they ask him the question. Jesus flips it over and he says, Why do you break God's commandment because of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother. But you say, you see that contrast he picks up on. God said this, you say, whoever tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is a gift committed to the temple. Jesus says he doesn't have to honor his father if he does that. In this way, you have nullified the word of God because of your tradition, you hypocrites. Here's the basic idea, is they thought that the worship of God freed them from social obligations. They thought this vertical thing erased the horizontal compassion and provision that needs to take place. So unpack that. Why, Why does Jesus call them hypocrites and associate it with this tradition? It's a tradition that's called korban. Depending on your English translation, you might actually see the word korban in your English Bible. Korban just is translated and it means given to God. So the hypocrisy is that the burdens of your aging parents, if you live in the first century, that's on you. As adult children, that becomes your responsibility. They didn't have retirement accounts. They didn't have Social Security. And so if they had children, the children are supposed to take care of mom and dad's medical bills and and so on and so forth. But these guys had set up this core bond. It's given to God. This money's already spoken for. I'm sorry, mom and dad. I really want to meet this need. Technically, I even have the money. It's actually right here but I already prayed about it and I had committed this stuff to God in advance. It's in the Corban Fund. It's going into the Corban Fund and Jesus says, here's a word for that. Hypocrites. You hypocrites. And he says, it reminds me of a text in the Old Testament when Isaiah said, this people worships me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. There's a breakdown, right? A graphic example of this even In recent times, a world-renowned defender of the faith and apologist, recent evidence has come up that despite his denials, he was living a double life and he was a predator. He was taking advantage of women. He was using his celebrity status and his ministry platform to groom women and then to abuse them and they're still in therapy. Years later, some of these things happened years and years ago and they're in therapy today, traumatized. Jesus has a word for that hypocrisy, you, you worship me with your lips but your heart is far away, look it's one thing to stumble and to repent and to manifest a commitment to walk in the light from here on, it's another to double down to get people, force people to sign non-disclosures, back them into a corner, rationalize and shift blame, that's, that's a whole different story, that's the story for which Jesus says, I'm thinking of a verse, as people worships me when their lips are moving but their hearts are far away. And sometimes Jesus, in his mercy, he has to talk to us the way he talked to them. Why? Because of this next truth, it's possible to engage in spiritual activity while our hearts hold on to idols. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, "Um, you came a long way to talk about something God doesn't even care about. You come all this way, and he says, you want to talk about something God cares about? Why don't we talk about this? Why don't we talk about the fact that you've got this Corban Pledge offering that excuses your neglect of your social responsibilities to the poor, starting with your parents? Why don't we talk about real stuff, real worship? Let's get real with this, right? He, he says, you know what God cares about? He cares about the fact that you guys would travel 100 miles up the road to command people to submit to a law that you and your buddies made up. He said, this is the command." Of God. You're upholding your traditions. This is the command of God. Let's be real about worship. Friends, we can be the same way. I love this quote from Dane Ortland in his, his fine book, Defiant Grace. He writes The real question is not how to avoid becoming a Pharisee, the question is how to recover from being the Pharisee that we already are right from the womb. The fact of the matter is, and it comes so clearly in this passage, that the bad news is the clean are actually already dirty. And it doesn't come from outside. It doesn't come from those other people. It doesn't come from our circumstances. It comes from right in here. It's baked in, which is why we need Jesus, which is why we need his cross and his blood to cleanse us because our deepest problem is an inside problem and our only solution is an outside savior. That's the gospel of Christian faith. The problem's deeper down. We've sinned against a holy God and the sin isn't just a thing we do. It's a nature. Clean or actually dirty, but two. Second, the dirty become clean. The dirty become clean. So in the first story, Jesus comes to a group of people, religious leaders, and they're proud. Two things keep people from God. Pride and Shame. Think about that, two things keep people from God, pride and shame, so you come up to this first group and they're the proud. You you ask these guys, hey, a penny for your thoughts. What's wrong with the world? Explain everything we're seeing on the news. What's wrong with the world? They don't say, I am. Sin is in my members. I need cleansing. It's me, I'm the problem, I'm inside the problem of evil. No, you know what they say? When you say, what's the problem with the world? They're probably pointing at the woman in verse 22. (laughs) They're probably saying, see that Canaanite woman over there? She's the problem. Those people, those Canaanites, they've hounded us over the years. She is the problem. And she comes and she's the shamed, right? Matter of fact, as soon as she comes up to Jesus, what do his disciples do? Send her away. She's one of those people. Send her off. She doesn't get to come hang out with us. Look at it with me in verse 21. When Jesus left there, he withdrew to the area of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came and kept crying out, have mercy on me. Notice, Lord, son of David. She knows his title. She knows who he is. He's the Messiah. My daughter, she says, is severely tormented by a demon. Jesus did not say a word to her. His disciples approached him and urged him, send her away because she's crying out after us. He replied, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came, knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. He answered, it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She is undeterred. She is tenacious. And look at Jesus. I think a smile spreads across his face. Then Jesus replied, Woman, your faith is great. Let it be done to you as you want. And from that moment, her daughter was healed. Why would this woman from that place come to this man? Why would a Canaanite seek out a Jewish rabbi? And the answer is Because she was desperate, she was fresh out of options, and she knew who Jesus was, and she suspected, maybe she heard tell that this Messiah is compassionate. He he doesn't just have miracle working power. He gives mercy to people, the wrong kinds of people, and he keeps apparently doing it, over and over. And he does it on the Sabbath. Like, he's just giving mercy away. Maybe he'll give mercy even to Canaanite women whose daughters are overtaken by evil. Maybe I'll get mercy from him. Look, there is a Christianity that passes in many parts, and it discourages real desperation. It's embarrassed of real desperation. It says, hey, look, you want to come up to Jesus? You want to approach? I need you to get yourself together. I need you to calm down, Let's compose. You can we can all seek grace together, but let's not seek it so aggressively. (laughs) Let's, Let's calm down. And this woman didn't get the memo. Because you hear her coming from the end of the block. She is shouting. Oh Lord, son of David, have mercy. She's shouting from a half a mile off, and, and when she comes up, there is, this, there is this exchange that almost seems like Jesus is playing hard to get, right? Because she comes up and begging for mercy, and Jesus says, I was only sent for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and she's not having it. She, it's as if Jesus hasn't even said it. She just keeps coming closer. Now she's on her knees, and she's saying, Have mercy. And even then, he pushes back again and he says, healing mercy is for the children. Healing mercy is the children's bread. Now he's reaching back into the whole unfolding story of Old Testament faith. What's that story? And the Gentiles knew it very well. For centuries, the children who feasted at God's table were Israelites they were of the family of Abraham. And the metaphor here that Jesus is using is that the pagans were like the dogs outside the house. They were scavenging in false religion. And Jesus is using that metaphor. And she said, I like your metaphor, but the dogs can eat the crumbs. She leverages Jesus' own metaphor. He says, it's, not for, it's for the children, it's not for the dogs outside. She said, but the dogs can eat the crumbs, right? And that's why I think this smile spreads across his face because he basically says, why can't we get this kind of faith in Israel? He had said that in other places in the Gospels. How come people in Israel don't believe the way she does? She's coming at me. She is tenacious. She knows who I am. She knows the story I'm writing. And that's why nobody can stop her. Here she comes in all the way, fully in, right? She's undeterred. Now I don't know if this fits your category, of Jesus Christ, but sometimes he touches a raw nerve. Sometimes he says insensitive things. Sometimes it looks like he's playing hard to get. The early church called it in these two Latin phrases, deus revelatus, the God who reveals, and deus absconditus, the God who hides. The God who wants to see how bad do you want it and what do you believe? That seems to be what's happening here, right? Sometimes grace stings before it sings. Jesus, what did Jesus just say earlier in this very same chapter? It's like, do you want to win these Pharisees? Because you called them blind guides. That's not necessarily opening doors for these guys. You called them blind guides. And then this Jesus, same Jesus in John chapter 4, talks to the Samaritan woman. He says, I want to give you living water. I need you to go get your husband. It's the same Jesus. That's a very insensitive question. And then he tells this Samaritan woman, the blessing of healing is for the children of Israel. And when she says, all I need is crumbs. What a statement of faith. She says, you give me a crumb, my daughter will be whole. That's why he says, what faith. What faith. What did she know? She knew who Jesus was, O Lord, Son of David. What else did she know? She knew mercy's feast has enough for me. She knew the story God is writing includes mercy for Gentiles. Throughout Matthew chapter 15, we see these striking, these these ironies that are supposed to jump out at us. The insiders are outside and the outsiders keep coming in. In droves, there's going to be about 4,000 of them in momentarily. They just keep coming in and eating the covenant bread, eating the evidence of God's mercy toward them. Bible teachers are blind guides, the irony, right? Canaanite women have great faith. The ritually clean are morally dirty, and the morally dirty receive mercy from God. Deep ironies throughout this passage. Friends, the Christian gospel announces two truths. The clean are actually dirty and the dirty can be clean. And look, when the Holy Spirit brings the truth of the Christian message of the gospel home to our hearts, it comes and it situates itself in your soul with two statements that you feel so deeply. And the first statement is, I need cleansing and I need it yesterday. And that statement comes with another arm in arm and that statement is, I need cleansing and Jesus is the one to do it. His blood will cover all my sin. Those two statements settle down into the heart and it's called the gift of repentance and the gift of faith. Looking and seeing our sin and looking and seeing his sufficiency of his atonement on the cross. (laughs) The church has set this truth to music over the centuries singing song after song and hymn after hymn speaking of this this fountain into which Christians go and all of our sins. The fountain is the blood of Christ and it washes all the sins of his people away. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. To all who have wondered, can I ever be clean again? To everyone who who wonders, is there a place for me at the feast of God's mercy? Matthew 15 is a resounding yes. There's more where that came from. The bread is available. It's the story God is writing. It's a story of salvation. The clean are actually dirty. The dirty can be clean And third, Jesus does it all. Look at the last episode of this passage. It seems like it's disconnected, but it's connected. Follow verse 32. Jesus called his disciples and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. I don't wanna send them away hungry, otherwise they might collapse on the way. The disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in this desolate place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked them. Seven, they said, and a few small fish. After commanding the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, gave thanks, broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied. They collected the leftover pieces, seven large baskets full. Now there were 4,000 men who had eaten besides women and children. So, Fun fact here, this whole chapter is about food. The whole chapter is about food. Matter of fact, a New Testament scholar summarized Matthew chapter 15 and his very first sentence in his commentary on Matthew 15 are these words, when God wants to express his love for people, he often does so with food, which may be the single greatest line of New Testament commentary I've ever read. Like God gives people food and it's a window into what he wants to do, the story that he wants to write. Come, come feed, come be satisfied, come live, I've got it all for you. You think about how food is connected all the way through this thread that runs through the whole passage in verse 1 through 9, what's going on. Why do your disciples eat this food without washing their hands? Verse 10 through 20, Jesus says people aren't unclean because of the food that they eat. It's because of what's already in their hearts that comes out of their mouths, not what goes into their mouths. Verse 21 through 28, Jesus speaks of healing as the children's bread, and then he gives that bread to the Canaanite woman. And then verse 29 to 31, he gives more bread to other Gentiles. And then in verse 32, he feeds 4,000 Gentiles plus women and children. See the heart of God in this passage. Jesus is unwilling to send people away hungry. I love that statement in verse 32. He was unwilling to send them away hungry. And they are not hungry. They are so full. They couldn't eat another bite. And there's still seven baskets of food that's just gonna go to waste. They don't have ice coolers. They don't have Ziploc bags. All this is just waste. This is just extra It's just excess, right? One of the most life-changing books for me in my Christian walk was Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God, where he says, you know, the story that we talk about the prodigal son and all of his wasteful extravagance and spending the inheritance, it's actually a story about the wasteful extravagance and lavish grace of the father. It's the prodigal God, it's the scandal of Of grace. Seven baskets that will never be eaten. They're just going to sit there. And what are they going to sit there and do? They're going to sit there and testify to the inexhaustible riches of the grace of God. They're going to shout to the crowds it's bottomless. You can hit this thing all day, you can keep coming back. There's more and more and more grace. It's the story of the gospel. One 16th century theologian, he was commenting on the value of Christ's atoning blood. And you know what he said? He said, the value of Christ's atoning blood would have been sufficient to purchase a thousand worlds of sinners. It's not like, you know, if there was just one less drop, we couldn't be in heaven it's like, no, thousands of worlds of sinners could be saved because of the sufficiency of the cross. You can hit this thing all day, it's bottomless. It's a massive, mighty salvation. Look, grace doesn't barely cover your sin, it absolutely buries it. Our God is not thrifty with grace. Matthew 15 screams, Our God is not thrifty with grace. You know, religion misses this. Jewish leaders, they travel 100 miles to lecture Jesus on the difference between clean and dirty. And meanwhile, Jesus just keeps bringing dirty people close and feeding them and saving them and healing them. This passage is meant to demolish moralism. Again, Dan Ortland, in that book I referenced earlier, he writes these words, Judaism is no more legalistic than any other religion so long as that religion is made up of humans. For the propensity to earn rather than receive God's favor is a human, not a Jewish, problem. And then he issues this challenge, this exhortation. It's time to enjoy grace anew, not the decaffeinated grace that pats us on the hand, ignores our deepest rebellions and doesn't change us, but the high-octane grace that takes our conscience by the scruff of the neck and breathes new life into us with a pardon so scandalous that we cannot help but be changed." You know what I hope and pray for you as a church? I pray that you never get over grace. It never becomes familiar. That... Amazing grace continues to be the story of your life. That I am, I want to be more amazed by grace next year than I am now. I want to be more amazed by grace, and for us to be more amazed by grace 10 years from now, and 20 years from now, and 30 years from now, than we are today. I hope sometimes when you worship, you are overcome with tears and the sense that, how, why me? I do not deserve this. I have sinned against God. Don't make me list them. I have sinned against God. How come I get to be here singing his praises? I was listening on the way into one of my favorite hymns. It's a hymn that's largely been lost to memory. But one of the verses says, Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Why me? How is it that mercy found me? How is it that I found my way to the table of the feast of grace? How do we lean into it? How do we live it out? Three things for us to take away very briefly. Number one, confess your sin and look to Jesus. Why would we hide our sin when God is so ready to forgive it? When grace is bottomless, why would we hide? Why would we install fig leaves of human morality when we can run to the one who saves and we can hit it over and over throughout our lives confessing? Maybe you've never confessed your sin to God before. Maybe this is the first time you're gonna put your trust in Jesus today. I pray that happens. Look, if that's you, we even have... Part of our our project was finishing out a lobby, and there's a space back there called Connection Point now. This is the first Sunday that it's open. If you're interested in following up, praying, trusting in Christ, finding out what does it look like to follow this awesome Savior you've been talking about, Connection Point, after service, love to talk. Confess your sin, look to Jesus. Second, be kind to people in struggle. If Matthew 15 gets into our bloodstream, we'll be kind to people in struggle. Why? Because Satan is really good at what he does. He's been doing it for a really long time. Satan is good at leveraging shame to keep tired sinners from finding rest in Jesus. He does an extremely effective job doing that, keeping people away from the one place where they can find hope. Scripture says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So let's hit that play button. God's kindness come on come to him third lean into the doctrine of grace look let's read the whole bible you might not read it in one year you might have a bible reading plan that takes it in two years the best bible reading plan is the one that gets you reading the bible so read the whole bible but master the doctrine of grace Master grace because grace is at the center of the Bible. Grace is at the center of the story that God is writing. My historical hero, I've got many, maybe at the top of the list is John Newton. He, uh, he was a former slave trader, gloriously saved, whole life and perspective changes, becomes a pastor, clergyman, writes the hymn Amazing Grace, sits in the darkness with his friend William Cooper. William Cooper wrote There is a Fountain Filled with Blood and a number of other hymns. William Cooper was suicidal. Even while he was writing these hymns, he was suicidal. And he was greatly depressed. He lived with a cloud over his head for 12 years and one friend at his side, and that friend was John Newton. And John Newton said at the end of his life, these words, I love this. He said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great savior. I've forgotten a lot of things. Look, could that be us 10 years from now, 20 years from now, and at your deathbed? I have forgotten so many things, but I do remember this. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great savior. That's the story God is writing.